Coming up on Home Dunk, the connection between Soren Kierkegaard, Martin Buber, and coach Dean Smith. Also, some fans tried to sell the New York Knicks. We'll find out how that's going. I hit a home dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head. Everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. In a handstand, I hit a grand slam, it was a great day for the fans, man. I got three sacks and broke three bats. I gave the crowd money plus free snacks. I did a hat trick and a backflip. It's on ESPN Classic, and you weren't there, and it hurt me to watch them retire my jersey. I hit a home dunk. Thank you, Open Mike Eagle. Hello, everybody. It's John Moe here. Hello, Dunkaroos, here to talk about, well, here to talk. We're going to talk about a basketball coach today on the program. Dean Smith coached at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's a coaching legend, retired in 1997, recently passed away. We planned this interview a little while ago, and then some horrible news came out of Chapel Hill. And our interview on the subject of Dean Smith has nothing to do with the very recent shooting deaths of three people in Chapel Hill. Dea Shadi Barakat, his wife Yusar Muhammad, and her sister Razan Muhammad Abu Salah were all killed. My apologies if I mispronounced that. But here's something that I thought. These three people were all students. Barakat was involved with an organization trying to provide free dental care to students at a school in Turkey. He was volunteering with the homeless in North Carolina. He was studying to be a dentist. And all three of them were were students. They were trying to learn something. They were trying to help. And they got murdered. Dean Smith was a basketball coach. And sports is entertainment. We know this. It's it's for fun. But as we're going to find out, Dean Smith also spent a lot of time learning as well. And Dean Smith also tried to help. He integrated the college basketball team at North Carolina back in the 1960s, bringing in an African-American player, Charlie Scott. He spoke out against the Vietnam War and the death penalty and the war in Iraq. The deaths of Dean Smith and these college students in Chapel Hill are unrelated. But I'm reminded of Mr. Rogers today. Um, this is something that has gone around, often surfaces in, in times of crisis. And it's Mr. Rogers quoting his own mother. And he says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. There were helpers in Chapel Hill, and there are helpers in Chapel Hill today. Former North Carolina coach Dean Smith passed away recently at age 83. He's well known for winning a whole lot of basketball games, two national championships. He's uh, become better known, too, uh, after his death. A lot of people have been covering 
uh, his work on civil rights and integration and opposition to the death penalty. Jason Zengerly uh, took an angle that I hadn't heard before, uh, writing in Slate, uh, and Jason is the political correspondent for GQ as well. And Jason, you wrote about Dean Smith's uh, strong interest in philosophy. Yeah, he um, he was really kind of unusual in that he had this uh, this whole kind of you know, intellectual life that you know was was sort of far beyond the realm of basketball. Um, he was in the habit uh, late at night. Uh, he would you know go to his study in his house and he would watch game film. And then when he was done, he would uh, you know, pull these books off the shelves that his uh, his sister, who had gotten her master's degree at the University of Chicago Divinity School, had suggested to him. And you know he would read stuff like Martin Buber and you know, Soren Kierkegaard and kind of you know try to figure out uh, the riddle of life. That was sort of what he liked to do in his spare time. Um, I mean, it did have some bearing on his, his basketball. He, uh, he tells the story about how you know, early in his career, before he was you know, the famous Dean Smith, he was a, just a very young coach at North Carolina who had succeeded kind of a legend, a guy named Frank McGuire, who had won the national championship here. Dean Smith was on his staff as an assistant, and then when McGuire left, to, I think, coaching the pros, uh, Smith got promoted. And the UNC team struggled. Um, they struggled to such a degree that one season Smith was actually hung in effigy on campus, and there were questions about whether he's going to be able to keep his job. And it was right after that, one night, he was watching some game film and turned it off, and uh, he pulled down a book called Beyond Ourselves by a theological writer named Catherine Marshall, and he encountered a theory of hers called The Power of Helplessness. And as he you know, told it in his memoir, that that in some ways changed the course of his career. He, um, he read this and he kind of recognized it and he, it, it, it made him you know, basically willing to kind of you know, embrace that power of helplessness and sort of submit to a higher power. And he just he kind of you know, almost achieved like the zen-like I guess, quality wow. in terms of just being calm. And he said, you know, his players sensed that. He never told them about it. And he, he was very careful to say, you know, I, I don't think God roots for the Tar Heels. I don't pray for us to win. It was just more about sort of his own personal feeling he had but he said his players noticed it, and you know from that point on they went on some huge winning streak, and that obviously you know, winning streak sort of continued on the rest of his career. It's so different from the temperament we normally associate with with college basketball coaches. You can't imagine Bobby Knight unwinding with some Kierkegaard at the end. Of the <laughs> no, maybe a little skeet shooting, but yeah, <laughs> Kierkegaard chair yeah. throwing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean. Dean Smith is famous for having all these disciples out in not just uh, college basketball, but pro basketball as well. All these people who had played with him, who had coached with him. Uh, do you see that Dean Smithness out there in, you know, Vince Carter or George Carl when he's a coach? I mean, you see it. You see it in the way they play, and I think in the way they approach the game, um, and certainly in an X's and O's quality. You don't, I mean, and maybe you see bits and pieces of it in their personalities, but it, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting sort of search looking for that. I mean, I think the most, the guy that, you know, I think at least I personally, and I think other people probably spend the most time searching for it in is, uh, is Roy Williams, who. Mm is now the coach at UNC and he's a he's a Dean Smith disciple. He he went to UNC, he was a, you know, very low assistant coach at UNC and then went to Kansas to be the head coach and then came back to UNC when the program was in a lot of trouble. And I think basically anyone who ever coached for Smith or played for him, you know, really reveres him. I mean, it's it's really it's it's almost cultish the way the way his former players and former coaches talk about him. Um and, and and Williams is no different, and maybe he's sort of the leader of the cult in some ways. I mean, he 
you know, he just has such high regard for Smith. I think he came back to North Carolina in large part because he wanted to please Smith. I mean, he was quite happy out of Kansas, and I think he would have stayed there if he had his druthers. But, you know, I think in this day and age, <clears throat> with with the way, you know, sports are, the way basketball is, college basketball is, it, it's it's almost, you know, you, you can't be someone like Dean Smith in, in, in that world anymore. And, and, and it's, it can be frustrating sometimes to look at people like Roy Williams and say, oh, you know, Dean Smith would have done it this way. Um, why can't Roy do it that way? But I also think, like, at least in someone like Roy Williams and someone like George Carl, people like that, they have Smith's, you know, kind of model in mind and his example in mind, and they, they do as best as they can in the circumstances to achieve that, but they'll never, they'll never quite equal it. Why do you say that you can't be Dean Smith in college anymore? I think the money is too much. I think the pressures are too much. I think it's – the whole culture has changed. I mean, Smith – Smith was this guy. I mean, he hated attention. I mean, that and it, that's I think one of the more unusual things about him. I mean, he really, truly did hate attention. It was, um, you know, I don't want to say he was shy, um, but he, he wanted the attention to be on his players. I know that sounds like the most cliched thing, but I mean, it's really true. I mean, if you ever sort of saw interviews with him, he tried so hard not to be interesting, <laughs> um, and he really, he really did want the focus to be on other people. Um, you know, the, the, the basketball stadium here is, is called the Dean E. Smith Center, and it's called the Dean Dome, as people call it. It was, it was named for him while he was still the coach at UNC, wow. and that was um, you know, very much over his objections. He, he tried really hard. He wanted to be named after his players, which, you know, of course, would have been like the longest name in the history of stadiums. But he fought really hard to, to prevent that, and eventually I think the, the powers that be prevailed on him and explained that, you know, we'll be able to build it if we name it, name it after you because we'll be able to raise the money for it, and he eventually agreed. But he just had this very kind of, you know, humble approach to things that, you know, today in college basketball, with, with the players changing so much, you know, with one and dones and the like, the only thing that's constant is, is the coach. So the coach is become these larger-than-life figures, and um, they're the face of college basketball in a way that I think you know, Dean Smith was never comfortable with. Uh, for outsiders who, who aren't in North Carolina, the big story always seems to be the rivalry between North Carolina and Duke. They're 10 miles apart, and uh, the fans really seem to, to hate each other. One of my colleagues here is a Duke fan, and she only grudgingly said, well, yeah, but I did like Dean Smith. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think I think, you know... Distance makes the heart grow fonder. I think. I think when he was coaching, people at Duke uh, didn't didn't much care for him. But you know, uh, when when he when when the immediate the immediacy of the rivalry um, you know got removed, I think people could sort of people there could recognize him for what he was. And you know, I'm sure I'll feel the same way about Coach K in whatever ten years, hopefully when he retires. Uh, you know, right now I, I you're not there yet, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not there yet. But uh, it, it's funny though, Coach K is. You know, I think a lot of people here um, who are more, you know, objective about it, feel that Coach K has become very much like Dean Smith in terms of his, his kind of elder statesman role, his, you know, his approach to the game. I mean, when, he, when Coach K started, he would always complain about Dean Smith, you know, getting all the calls and things like that. Um, and now he kind of has the, the, the sort of the seat that, that, that Smith used to have. And I think, you know, people, people have seen that kind of evolution with him. Yeah. Jason Zengerly uh, from GQ, writing about Dean Smith on Slate.com. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hit a home dunk. The New York Knicks are for sale. Kinda. Not 
really, but that's the conceit that Dan Filowitz and his friends are going with at their new website, Nicks4Sale, numeral 4, sale.com. Dan is a New York sports fan, lives in the Bay Area. He hosts a podcast called The Jets Will Inevitably Kill Us. Hello, Dan. Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Why are, uh, why are you selling the Knicks? <laughs> um, well, I think there's a, a long litany of reasons, and I think for people who have followed the Knicks for a long time have been frustrated with the owner for the last 15 years, 20 years, however long it's been since they've owned it. Um, the, the latest last straw was just the uh, very contemptuous email he, he sent as a response to a fan who was frustrated, and, and you know, an older fan who was frustrated, you know, calling him names, like a, you know, accusing him of being an alcoholic and suggesting that he root for another team. And it was just sort of a typical tone-deaf and typical sort of entitled way of behaving that, that James Dolan has been doing the entire time he's, in, he's on the team. It would be great if uh, he actually would not be the owner anymore. I mean, we recognize that that's, un, that's unlikely to be the, the actual outcome of this, but it would still be... If it actually happened, it'd be really nice. You you use an interesting phrase there, the latest final straw. How many other final straws have there been? Oh, it's a lot. I mean, it depends on when you want to start counting. And it depends on also if you want to talk about it just in terms of bad basketball decision-making versus just general uh, buffoonery to general just sort of like... Uh, Lack of a better word, icky behavior on his part. On his part, I mean, the, the sexual it, it, harassment it's a, it's a lawsuits and stuff that, yeah. that's happened under the Dolan regime. That any one of them, you know, could have could have been considered like I can't believe it. I wish this guy would. I wish this guy would go away already. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the challenge in, in in general, right? It's like it's hard. It's hard to get rid of the owner, so he can just keep doing this stuff. Now, were you one of the people behind the uh, the fire John Isdick website as well? Yes, it's, okay. all, it's the same group of people that, that was behind that, that's and, behind this. And he he is the former general manager of the New York Jets football team, and, uh, yes. and he has been fired. Do you think that you had any control over that, or was it him sucking at his job real bad that led to that? I think uh, probably more that, that he deserved it from from his own uh, performance in his job. But I think that the conversation that we, you know, that we started let, certainly let the, the owner of the team know that the fans weren't grading his performance very highly. So, you know, if that had a part of the conversation, yeah, I think it, it contributed. Do I think it was the primary reason? No. I guess with our, with our help, that the fans were able to very publicly let, the, let them know that this, this, everything that's going on wasn't okay. So what are your plans for this next effort? What do you hope to achieve, and what are some of the tactics you're going to use to achieve it? Um... We, we've talked about this in terms of a, a, a tangible goal. We, we don't know. Uh, besides just, I think, the general, like, calling attention to what's going on and try, trying to hold, to have there be some accountability for this kind of behavior. I mean, the, the owner shouldn't feel entitled to the support of the fans. And uh, it's just very hard to, to hold them accountable for anything. So a more a more public display of frustration, I think, is is what our what our goal is, and I think that our, our tactics will be at, at the moment. Our tactic is to try to get a billboard put up at uh, somewhere somewhere near Madison Square Garden, mm. and uh, you know we'll you know through the people who who are you know donating donating towards that cause. We'll, we'll, and what we did with the fire John Inzik, uh effort was also like use the creativity of the of the, of the fans to 
figure out the messaging, and we'll we'll, we'll do the same thing with uh, with this billboard. Let me uh, let me let me try a little something for you, Dan. I'm gonna. I, I have a, a a massive background in theater. I'm a very talented actor. I'm saying tongue in cheek, okay. and uh, I'm gonna be James Dolan here. Okay, and okay. Uh, and try to keep it civil. But uh, but let's have a let's have a discussion. I've called you into my office, Dan. I understand that you and your friends have some problems with me and problems with the team. Uh, what's going on? Well, here, here's the thing, Mr. Dolan. Um, oh, now I'm Mr. Dolan. <laughs> but you know, it's it's your office. I was trying to be nice. All right. Uh, so, I think under your under your your leadership, this you know we we the team is basically been a laughing stock. It's been it, it's and it's not just because occasional bad basketball moves that don't pan out. It's it's the entirety of of the leadership. It's the entirety of the, of the management style. It's it's really everything. But Dan, and, I brought in Dan, yes. I brought Dan, Dan. I brought in Phil Jackson. Uh you know, I, I paid Carmelo Anthony and besides that's me paying that. It's not you. You don't need to worry about what business is it of yours. I've spent money on this team. Well, there's no denying you spent money on the team, but uh, any anybody with money can spend money, and spending money intelligently is actually what we're after, not just not just the the simple fact of spending. I mean, to your credit, yes, Phil, Phil Jackson bringing him in was it seems it seems great, but the Thank idea you. was that you were going to get out of the way and let, let people who know what they're doing in terms of running a basketball team run things, and you know the. The fear that we have is that you're going to be inserting yourself back into it again because you can't help yourself. Dan, you have to realize I'm a very talented guitarist, and I, I know a thing or two about basketball, but okay, you win, I relent, I will sell the team uh, to somebody else. Yeah. Gee, thank you. That, that, that was actually much easier than I thought it was. Well, be. you know, and <sighs> scene. Now, Dan, final question. Uh, sure. th- through all this, and uh, I encourage people to go have a look at nicksforsale.com. My favorite section was the bad expiring contracts that were re- replaced by even longer bad contracts. This is uh, it was sadder than I realized. Um, through this all, are you still a Knicks fan, and will you continue to be a Knicks fan? I mean, the answer, the answer is yes. And um, it's the mystery of sports fandom, right, which is it doesn't seem like there's anything that they can do to me to make me stop liking the team. And, you know, when the team gets good again, and I think it's a when and not not an if, at some point it's going to happen, I will have fun rooting for the team again, just like I, like I did when, you know, when I was, when I was coming up and, you know, with all those nineties Knicks teams that were actually fun to to root for and like made you proud to root for the team. uh, That will happen again. And all of us have other things to do. We all have jobs and families and things like that. But, you know, we want our sports to be fun. Like if I, if I wanted to be depressed, I'd watch the news. I don't want to have to go to my sports to be depressed. And so I want it to be fun again. And I think that, you know, we, we care enough to just say like, look, change things so that it can get back to, to how it was. And when, when it was one of the joyous experience to be a fan of the Knicks. I can understand if you want to avoid depressing things and being a fan of the Knicks, that you, there is some conflict. Um, well, Dan Felowitz, as a as a uh, resident of the Twin Cities and somebody who follows the Timberwolves, I guess I'll just see you at the lottery, huh? Yes, yes, for sure. Um, I guess we're I guess we're, we're we're battling for the ping pong balls. Ping pong balls right now. So, <laughs> Dan Felowitz hosts the podcast. The Jets will inevitably kill us. Dan, thanks. 
All right, thank you very much. And finally, turning to Australian professional women's basketball, Jayco Austrian Opals' Christy Harrower has announced her retirement. We all were speculating whether it would happen, uh, but it's true. She led the Bendigo Spirit to back-to-back Waddle Valley WNBL championships in 2013 and 2014. So apparently she's going to suit up against Adelaide for her farewell. She might not necessarily play in uh, in that particular game, but uh, I know that the Australian pork Bendigo spirit are going to miss her, and all women's Australian professional basketball fans will as well. Home Dunk is produced by Nina Patak. We get engineering help from lots of people all around the building. We get production help from Steve Nelson, from Peter Clowney. I'm John Moe. Bye now.